Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. And happy Mother's Day if you celebrate that holiday. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning and we're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us and you have questions about this church or this faith, please don't hesitate to ask the friendly people at the visitor table in the foyer. Also, if you've been coming for a while and you'd like to make this your spiritual home by joining this congregation, that is pretty easy to do. And just, again, ask the people at the visitor table about how to do it. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning is from a book titled For One More Day by Mitch Albom. But There's a story behind everything. How a picture got on a wall. How a scar got on your face. Sometimes the stories are simple, and sometimes they are hard and heartbreaking. But behind all your stories is always your mother's story. Because... Hers is where yours begin. One of the things that holds us together, even though we have roots and practices in many different religions and faiths, we come together as members of this faith, Unitarian Universalism. Unitarian Universalism has an august heritage Lives that speak and deeds that beckon, we sing about in our song. One of the lives that speaks and among the deeds that beckon are those of one of the forebearers of our faith, Michael Servetus. We'll hear about him later. But we have a very rich heritage, and I want you to know about it. Every family also has its heritage, the stories of the mother, the stories of the father, Some families are sunny and simple, and some families are more complicated. And we come together with many different backgrounds in that way as well. This congregation is here for a reason. One of the ways we express the reason that we're here is by affirming our mission which we've written on the wall. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Now is the time in the service when we breathe together into that part of our heart where we are most who we are. We seek stillness in a world where swirling all around us are conflicting 
images of what today is all about. We read this reading from Julia Ward Howe that is rooted in the radical peace activist beginnings of Mother's Day. And today all around us are brightly colored cards with inscriptions that are not nearly complex enough to express our love, our memories, those things we were taught that are good for us and those things we were taught that we have had to let go. Through all of this swirl, we seek stillness. Let us enter into the silence together. You are now invited to light candles of joy, sorrow, remembrance, and hope. My confession this morning is that when I scheduled this sermon on Servetus, one of the first martyrs of the faith, um, I had forgotten it was Mother's Day, and I posted on Facebook this thing that I had forgotten, and I said to my colleagues and friends, can you think of any way to like weave these two things together? <laughs> I knew what I was going to do. I just wanted to see what they would say. If you're not my Facebook friend already, just friend me and I'll friend you and you can see the thread. Um, I just imagine in this story, as I do in many stories, being the mother of two sons, I imagine what this person's mother would have felt like watching her son's life. Talking about Michael Servetus, he was born in Spain. He was born in the 16th century during the Spanish Inquisition to a family of minor nobility. So he's pretty safe by reason of birth from the Inquisition, good Roman Catholic family. But he had a brilliant mind. And he was very well educated by his family, and by the time he was 13, he spoke French and Greek and Latin. This was a time of great upheaval in the continent of Europe because uh, Martin Luther had, was a monk in Wittenberg, Germany, and he had come to an area of disagreement with the Mother Church on how the Mother Church handled forgiveness of sins. What they were doing is they were fundraising uh, in order to, oh, say, fund a building program or capital campaign. <laughs> and believe me, I've, I've thought about how to do this, but it's not going to work for Unitarian Universalists. 
They were selling what's called indulgences. And um, if, you were, if you had a small sin that was worrying you, you just bought a small indulgence. And then um, it, they called it, heaven would call it even. And if you had a big sin, you'd buy a more expensive indulgence. And heaven would call it even. And even the, toward the end here, before Martin Luther started uh, fighting with him about it, they were saying things like, well... You can even buy them in advance. (laughs) If you feel a big sin coming on. (laughs) Luther wrote out 95 points of disagreement with the mother church and he nailed them to the door of the church in Wittenberg. Kind of like posting them to his wall, I guess. It wouldn't have been too bad, except that the printing press was just being invented. And so lots of little print shops were springing up all over the place. And they were hungry for things to print. And so they started printing the 95 Theses of Martin Luther, and thousands of copies sold out really fast. See, until the 1500s, a book had to be copied by hand. And there were monks who toiled the days away, the years away, copying books by hand, um, Bibles were very expensive and enormous because they had, you know, it's a big book anyway, and you have to write it out all by hand and make sure you write it correctly, and um, they become extremely expensive, and only the very wealthy had a Bible, and only the very biggest cathedrals, which, you know, a cathedral is the seat of a bishop, I don't know if you knew that, they have a Bible, But very few people could read. Not the priests, not the lay people, not the nobles. Very few people could read. And so pretty much nobody read the Bible. They just trusted the teachings of the church to tell them what was in there. And so if you had said, God tells us that if you buy an indulgence, you can be forgiven, people would go, okay, I guess that's true. So Luther, encouraged by the printing of his 95 Theses, began to write more, and people began to read what Luther had written. And Erasmus, who was a great humanist and very witty, was uh, being read widely. And universities were springing up everywhere as every little princeling wanted to have a center of learning in his province. And so university after university were buying the books as fast as they could be printed. Once again, the current administration of the church and uh, the powers that be at the time were overturned not really by revolution but by technology. The printing press made all the difference. The church had started losing control before this because there were thousands of Jews and Muslims from Africa and um, Turkey pouring in to Spain. And uh, the Spaniards, 
wanted them converted to Christianity. And the point at which they couldn't agree with Christianity, love everybody, fine. God created the world, fine. Trinity, not fine. So many people were banished, tortured, burned at the stake because they could not say, yes, I agree with the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, the Trinity. It was against this background that Servetus, at 14, was sent to the University of Toulouse to work for a famous scholar and go to school there. Now, Mama felt good about sending him to Toulouse because it was a conservative town. It was not known as a party school. Her boy was going to be all right. (laughs) Unfortunately, you know what kind of people teach in universities. And his boss, the famous scholar, was one such radical. And the university itself was a hotbed of radical thought. So, Servetus began reading Erasmus, the humanist, reading Luther. Now, students were not allowed to read the Bible, so they read it cover to cover (laughs) in secret. Somehow, Servetus had picked up enough Hebrew to discuss the Jewish scriptures in their original language. Hebrew was a forbidden language, forbidden by the church, because the church didn't really want anybody making their own translations of the original language. They wanted you to use the translation that was there. But Servetus was reading it in its original language, and he spoke Greek, by the way, you know, the language of the Christian scriptures. So when he was reading the whole Bible through in its original language, and he was thinking, so many people have had so much trouble because of this doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm not finding it anywhere. I'm not finding it anywhere in the Bible. They talk about God the Father. They talk about God the Son. They talk about the Spirit of God. But nowhere in the Bible does it say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this is the Trinity, three in one. So he thought this would be good news to everybody. Look, we don't have to fight. You believe in the Trinity if you want to, but it's not in here. You don't have to burn them for not believing in it. It was not received with as much delight as he thought it was. He wrote a little pamphlet called On the Errors of the Trinity. He made it tiny, three inches by six, so it could be stashed quickly. Because nobody was supposed to be reading such as that. Now, he got in trouble. Probably like his mom told him he would. He may have sent her a copy of that, or he may have just hoped she wouldn't find out about it. There are children with different, they're wired differently, you know. Some of them just confront straight on, and some of them try to slide around. Don't know which one Servetus was, but I'm pretty sure he was a confront straight on kind of guy. You make up your mind after you hear the rest of this story. So he had this pamphlet, 
And at home in Spain, the Spanish Inquisition wrote him a letter and said, we would like to see you here just for conversation. (laughs) He went to Switzerland. Smart boy. He lived with a leader of the Protestant church in Switzerland for 10 months, but then he got kicked out because why? He couldn't leave theology alone, and he wasn't sweet about it. He was arrogant. He wanted to present the truth. Look right here. William Sloan Coffin, very famous Baptist minister, said, uh, no one loves the enemy of his illusions. Wise to keep this in mind. He did not have that in mind. And so he would fight with the person who was putting him up. And he would call names. And say things like, what an idiot. And uh, so he got thrown out. And he had to move on. He moved to Lyon in France to work as a printer. And so he was printing. And they were putting together copies of Ptolemy's geography. Um, So Ptolemy's geography was a beautiful book. And uh, yet, our boy, Servetus, Michael Servetus, He couldn't resist uh, adding his own opinions in to Ptolemy's work um, before printing it. So he wrote, you know, he he actually improved the book somewhat with his great scholarship, but also his opinions um, got in there. He wrote, uh, the English are brave, the Scots fearless, the Italians vulgar, the Irish rude, inhospitable, barbarous, and cruel. On a map of Germany, Ptolemy's map of Germany, he wrote, all Germans are gluttons and drunkards. (laughs) He was still greatly admired in Lyon, but he got into trouble again, got kicked out of the town when he started discussing religion again. He decided he was going to move to Paris. This is 1536. Changed his name to Villeneuve. Mr. Villeneuve. And so he attended the university to study medicine. Right at this time was when Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife and the Pope wouldn't let him. And so Henry VIII started his own church, the Anglican church. That was happening up in England while Villeneuve was studying to be a doctor. Um, He paid his way through school, lecturing on geography, astronomy, and mathematics. He became a respected doctor, living as a good son of the Catholic Church. He was only censured that one time by the church in France for mixing astrology with his medicine. He edited a new Latin translation of the Bible and became the famous Dr. Villeneuve, consulted by nobles and potentates of the church. His truth, his truth would not be denied. Have you ever felt that? You have something to say, and by heaven, you have to say it. You just have to say it, even though you know what's going to happen afterwards. He was such a person. He was just on fire with this truth of his. 
And so he started studying theology again. Now, the reformer John Calvin had just taken over Geneva. He was the ruler of Geneva. And Calvin was writing his books called Calvin's Institutes. I believe there are seven volumes. It might only be five. Took up this much space on my shelf in seminary. The volumes, I'd inherited them from my grandfather, Calvin's Institutes. And uh, we had to read them all, all the way through. And uh, I did not receive them with as much passion as Villeneuve did. He started reading them and um, arguing with them in the margins of the pages. He began writing to Calvin, again arrogantly, again rudely. As in the past, he was not so much interested in seeking to be, to seeking to understand before he sought to be understood. He, he hadn't read this seven habits of highly effective people. <laughs> he was not really interested in being effective. He was interested in being correct. And so he began writing John Calvin and making John Calvin mad. He would send John Calvin his own books back to him with the corrections in the margin. No one loves the enemy of his illusions. Calvin was mad and he wrote to a third party that if he ever got his hands on this fella, he would not leave Geneva alive. Back then, it was very dangerous to have unorthodox religious beliefs. Orthodox just means these are the beliefs that this particular meeting of the pillars of the church agreed upon. In this meeting, they agreed. This is orthodoxy. And if you're unorthodox or a heretic, then you are in deadly danger in this period of time. Not in danger like we are of our families uh, looking askance at us or not inviting us to a wedding or uh, writing us tearful letters about why we have abandoned the faith of our childhood. Um, Real actual flames or beheading or torture in prison is what you had to look forward to if you lost your court appearance, if you lost your trial. So um, Servetus broke off his correspondence with Calvin for about four years. I don't know if it was because of advice from his mother. (laughs) Could have been, son, you're a doctor. Just be happy with that. You don't have to be a theologian all theologyed up. Just help people get better. This is so dangerous. People will love you if you're just a doctor. Right now they hate you. Do you like that? No. While he had broken off his correspondence with Calvin, he wrote his final work. Unfortunately, turned out to be his final work. The Restitution of Christianity, which was printed anonymously in 1552. Interestingly to me, within the body of this new work of theology, as a metaphor, he used something he'd figured out about the circulatory system, about how um, there is pulmonary circulation of the blood from the right chamber of the heart to the lungs. Nobody knew that before. He had discovered that with his medical work. Um, He's the first one to have published anything about that, but the problem was he just 
tossed it off as a metaphor, an example of this terribly shocking theology he was writing. And so nobody even noticed for years that he had made a significant discovery in the field of medicine because they couldn't understand it because they couldn't pay attention to it because their heads were screaming so loudly and their eyes were all red with anger because of what he was writing that, you know, Jesus was not divine, that he was created by God and became divine because of his actions on earth. Servetus was a wanted man. It is an old saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Protestant Geneva and the Spanish Inquisition were enemies, but they collaborated to try to get Michael Servetus. He was on the run. They caught him in France, jailed him, he escaped and disappeared. His trial in France went on without him for 10 weeks, and he was sentenced to die in the flames. And But he was unavailable. So uh, they created an effigy of him and burned that. Satisfied something. So he was keeping out of sight, that Servetus, that summer, moving slowly toward Italy where he might have been safe. There weren't that many countries where he wasn't being hunted. He didn't have to go through Switzerland on his way down to Italy. But for some reason, he went through Switzerland. There's a lot of Switzerland that's not Geneva. He didn't have to go through Geneva on his way down to Italy. But he did. In Geneva, it was the rule that even if you were just passing through on Sunday, you had to go to church. Streets were deserted. He didn't have to go through Geneva on Sunday, but he did. Somebody tipped Calvin off that there was Servetus in church. He got imprisoned. He was tried. He was sentenced to death. It took months They had to go through all of his heresies. It appears from his correspondence that he thought he might just get off with a fine or being banished. What was he thinking? He'd already been condemned to death in France. He thought they were going to be sweeter in Switzerland? He was found guilty. Calvin himself pushed for a more merciful death of beheading. So this is a little mark on Calvin's side, I guess. But his council wanted flames. And October 27th, which should be a high holy day for Unitarians, the sentence was carried out and Servetus was burned with his book chained to his ankle. The reaction throughout Europe was revulsion. They couldn't believe the barbarism. Actually, the gift of Servetus' life in the flames 
fueled huge energy and discussion about Unitarian thought. If you're not Trinitarian, you're Unitarian. This is our forebear, even though he wouldn't have known there could be a Unitarian church because there wasn't one at the time. Right next door in Transylvania in Central Europe, the king of that country, tired of all the violence around difference of beliefs, said, we're going to have freedom of religion in our country. As long as I'm the king, we're going to have freedom of religion. People can come here and discuss ideas. We can even discuss Servita's ideas without anybody getting thrown in jail. All of his books were destroyed except for three copies which remained, which were found, and now you can find them in translation. You can't control people without terrible violence, and you can't control ideas at all. At all. And so, my friends, we balance truth and love. And when we feel the truth wanting to come out, we try to speak it in love. But it cannot be pushed down. Anybody who's struggled with a truth like, I'm gay, has tried to push it down, at least up until five minutes ago. People have tried to push it down, and yet... It comes out, and you come out, and suddenly you feel relieved. Or you say something that needs to be said. I remember my mother talking to her mother. My mother was 45 or something and said uh, she was about to die of cancer right then. And her mother said something like, Oh, how sharper than a serpent's tooth is an ungrateful child. Quoting Shakespeare at my mother. And my mother, I remember her snapping at her mother, which I've never seen before. Ever. My mother didn't snap. Ever. Mother, I am not your child. She felt a lot better after saying that. It didn't cure her, but she felt better. Speaking the truth has power. The truth itself has power. Reading the truth, hearing the truth. When you feel the truth, you go, wow, that has the ring of truth, and that has power. Why we love it so. And who can stay silent when we feel the Spirit call us to speak about our free religion? And who can stay silent when we know what lives speak and what deeds beckon and what blood has been spilled in order for us to have our freedom today? We honor those who have gone before us. And now please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Day is a breaking in my soul. Go in peace. 
This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.